and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty, reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. If you're an engineer working to put machine learning into production, you should definitely subscribe to the Machine Learning Engineered newsletter. Every Thursday, I send out a short email featuring the five most interesting things that I've learned that week. Past issues have included links to articles, research papers, events, and videos, all curated specifically for the busy machine learning engineer who wants to become the best at what they do. To get that in your inbox, go to cu.ai slash newsletter. Again, cyou.ai slash newsletter. My guest today is Benedict Kohler. He's a self-professed ops guy, having spent over 12 years working in roles such as DevOps engineer, platform engineer, and infrastructure tech lead at companies like Stylite and Talentree, in addition to his own consultancy, KEMB. He's recently dove headfirst into the world of machine learning, where he hopes to bring his extensive ops knowledge into the field as the co-founder of Myote, the company behind ZenML, an open source ML ops framework. Ben, welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Looking forward. Yeah, me too. I have to say that your blog posts on the on the Myote blog are really good. They're like short and punchy, but have a lot of really good information. Cool. That, that's a important feedback. It's like challenge is always not to ramble too much. There are so many thoughts floating around and then getting it point on is quite nice. Less technical than most people maybe would want to from a MLOps guy, but more thought provoking, I hope. And of course, the technical stuff you will have as well and the framework itself, which we'll dive into later. But the first question I like to ask everyone is how you were first exposed to computer science and programming and why you decided to choose as a career. So my path is, I guess, less straightforward than for most people. So I, I never studied, self-taught. I, I turned from being a gamer and quite a, yeah, I was a wild teenager, I would call it, and really turned my path from whatever I was doing into a career, first in systems administration. So quite old school, we were running a data center and had 
Linux administration started with some internal support for the programming guys as they continuously struggled to deploy. Back then, it was really SSHing into a server and uh, SCPing code and hoping that nobody had changed anything that would break your deployment. And from then on, I don't know, the DevOps revolution caught me from behind and swept me up and brought me into a couple of careers. I left my first job, went into Stylite, a local scale-up. There were 25 or 30 people there when I started and we had to we were basically victims of, of our own success, so we had to become quite innovative. When I started, it was like three servers at a local co-location data center. And back then, even AWS gave us a call whether we wouldn't want to join them and got a deal then with a local TV station and got some ads. And all of a sudden, you have to make sure that if your ad runs at prime time, a million people will go to your website all at once, all within the span of three minutes, maybe. And you sure as hell don't want to lose any of those conversions, right? E-commerce. So every click counts. That was a fun ride and I never really left the thrill of it. So that stuck with me. You had mentioned something in there, the the DevOps revolution, which which I want to really dig into. You've had, of course, been able to see from the very start of your career where, like you said, people are just SSHing into machines and deploying the code that way. And in many ways, as we'll get to later, ML is a lot like that uh, in that state right now. But how would you describe the revolution that, that was DevOps and especially tailored for an audience like like ours, which is more ML data science focused who doesn't necessarily know about uh, the DevOps revolution. Yeah, for sure. It's such a broad topic, right? It spans so many aspects of understanding development life cycles and software engineering as a practice. And there are, it always depends a bit who you're talking to and what their initial perspective is. But just coming from a straight up software engineering practice, I think the quote that defines this entire paradigm of DevOps. The best is from uh, Werner Vogels from uh, Amazon that said, you build it, you run it, right? Your responsibility does not end with writing the last uh, semicolon on your JavaScript code. Your responsibility ends when your JavaScript code is rendered in the browser of your customer and the behavior of the customer was successful. That's where your responsibility should end, right? You build it, you run it. And it has transformed organizations across industries just because of understanding you should not silo your teams. It's not that you have one IT department, right? Every once in a while, you get on a call with a more established uh, old school type of company and they would talk about their IT departments and then you always know, okay, no, this um, might not be the most fruitful call that we're going to have. Now, it really transformed it and into thinking about software engineering less as a blanket term practice that you can boilerplate apply to your, your internal organization, but that you need to think about the services that these teams should be providing. And I know that I'm staying vague, but we can for sure just jump into more details. But I think on a global orbital perspective, that's really what it's about, understanding where... So maybe if we should to 
segment the conversation a little bit. Let's uh, dive into that quote, you build it, you run it. So what is the problem behind just a software engineer writing something and then uh, throwing it over the wall to someone to deploy it? Sure. You summarized it correctly. That was basically the practice 15 years ago. You had an ops team. Uh, those were some bearded guys in some basement r running some server farm that nobody understood what the hell is going on. And you had some software engineers that would write their code and just send an email with a zipped file attached. Here's the code. Thank you. Or I put it on Git. That was would be already a, a rock star kind of organization. The problem is the software guy, the engineer does not understand which environment his code is executed in. And every environment has side effects. We're just trying to build technology to mitigate that problem, but every technology, every environment will have a side effect and you need to be aware of that. You need to be aware of how your software behaves when a million people are trying to make requests to your API. And the ops guy might not necessarily be deep enough in the code or traditionally would not be in the code at all to understand why you have leaks somewhere, right? Because you're not closing the calls, you're not terminating the calls as you're supposed to be terminating them in your API. So the conversation between those two disciplines is crucial in order to understand how your production environment is affecting the software and vice versa in order to make sure that you're running a efficient um, software stack in production. Yeah, and then we can make parallels to machine learning here where it's many data scientists and machine learning engineers who are tasked with if the company wants them to be more end-to-end, -end, they don't always know a lot of these practices of proper, like you said, monitoring and being able to figure out what is actually in that environment. Things like declarative configurations and separating those configurations from the code, which, uh, which I hadn't actually heard about until I was reading it on your blog. But yeah, declarative configurations, we'll get to that later, but really good idea. And uh, so more into this ops topic, maybe what are some of the other key tenets or principles that you think are really missing when you see the ops practices that a lot of machine learning teams are doing right now? I think it, so there's a lot of things that are working really well. So I think that it's always important to prefix a conversation about ML ops, especially with a grizzled ops guy with that. There's always the risk of sounding just too negative and um, throwing out like blanket hate on Jupyter Notebook, that should not be the, I don't want to create that image, but that has the flip side of, as you hinted already, things are a bit in a dire state because teams lack this, this, this composition that software engineering team that you would assemble today be usually comprised of, right? You would have in a traditional software engineering team, if you build it from scratch today, you have someone um, that has a bit of this ops knowledge. You have someone that is a bit more of a senior computer science guy. You have ideally someone that is like reminiscent of a customer, right? These are just these roles that are present within a successful team. And in machine learning projects, that's usually not the case. You, When you get to companies and you have calls with them, how their data science departments look like or how their ML teams look like, you usually get like what? 
one PhD that is a mathematician and you will get two guys that have a master's from a good university that where they did a machine learning course. But you would have often no one that has a deep understanding of where the data is coming from and what the domain is. And you would often lack exactly this understanding of where will the model be executed? How long has the industry spent with the problem of how am I serving a model? That, I understand that this is a maybe a daunting challenge, but it's actually not hard. You're essentially executing a binary, and that should not be a complex thing for teams to worry about. It should be, where am I serving my model? How am I serving my model in a bigger perspective? So um, I think we need to... As a as an industry, need a, need to lose this inhibition towards okay, these are technologies I do not understand, and like lower the barrier of adopting healthy practices by by good tooling. When you look at the tooling landscape right now, of course, you are one of those companies that is trying to fill some of the gaps that you see in that tooling landscape. Where do you think things are pretty solid right now, and where could where could things be better? So I think that if you just look at the last 12 months and see which companies have spawned in that time, that the field we're in is super young. We're at the end of the feature store hype. So shout out to the Tekton guys, awesome work. But right, we're coming a bit to the end of the feature store hype. We don't know what the next hype will be. We had It's just moving so fast. And I think we're very solid in isolated parts of the life cycle of machine learning. I think DVC has figured out versioning of data. That's cool. I think we have some feature stores coming up that are shaping out to be usable. Feast, I think, has a bit of a way to go, but is already a really good contender. Tekton is cool, uh, supporting each other. So that's a very healthy sign for the ecosystem. Where it's less solid is, I think, the application of all these isolated fields together. And I think monitoring of models is still a field that we're exploring. I think there's a lot progress that has been made in the last years, but we haven't brought together the ops knowledge about monitoring applications deeply in, from an observability point of view and the actual computer science behind, not the computer science, the mathematical science behind machine learning. I think if we can bridge that gap a bit more, that is necessary. And again, I think stitching these isolated fields together is the biggest challenge that we're looking at right now. For, I want to get on, get to the stitching together of these things a bit later, but because that is a ridiculously hard problem right now. But something you said was really interesting was the observability about how that's not really present so for someone who has who doesn't have that ops knowledge, what how would you describe observability? How would you differentiate it from monitoring? And what are some of the best practices that people who are doing this at the highest level are doing? So I'm going to steal an analogy that a former boss of mine gave me for that. And when observability became a hot topic in the DevOps world, which is a few years ago, he used to explain it. If you're doing monitoring, you're like a private investigator that's following a spouse that's cheating. You get some information, but it's one-sided. You're peeking 
in from the outside world, but you're not getting any information from the inside outwards. And when you're talking about observability, that's more of a collection of practices in its own right about developing your application with monitoring in mind so that your application is communicating its state in a very coordinated way to the outside. It's observability is the conversation that we are having. We're sharing information with each other and not um, a private investigator, just listening in. Interesting. And for machine learning specifically, if you're serving a model, what might it, what might observability, what might that service look like if it were built for that monitoring in mind with making it observable versus what is more common now where that's not the case? I think you can get to an observable state already, but you have to put in a lot of effort. I'm not trying to say that it's impossible to reach observability with machine learning, quite the opposite. But if you stitch it all together, it's the application, like the applying the literal application of a machine learning model um, needs to factor in some more neck-bearded ops topics, like how many requests per minute am I pumping through and how is my model behaving in terms of a resource usage, for example. But you need to stitch that together with how is data being treated in my model? What are my outputs? What are my inputs? And that that is where all of this becomes a real challenge, right? Because drift is a thing that happens over time. So you cannot just examine one slice of data going through your model. You need to see the relation it has to the rest of the data that you've been pumping through your system over time. And I think there's so much information to be gained from how a model also behaves over time from this shared perspective from resources to how um, inputs relate to outputs. I think we need to do a bit of more work as an industry to stitch that together. Yeah, and uh, that brings us back to the challenges of, in general, connecting a bunch of different things because we... Like you said before, we have this code lifecycle of like understanding requirements and then bring that all the way to deployment. And in a lot of ways, ops was the process of making that explicit in code and then being able to automate large parts of that. And then now in machine learning, we have this second data model loop of which we are trying to bring those processes over. And like you said, the data is one one part of that which needs to be versioned and need, like you mentioned with DVC and there's a lot of things that we still have to go in terms of not only stitching together the parts of that code loop itself, but also to into the the code lifecycle. So how what do you going back to the the tools that are out there right now and maybe a little bit of what you're building, what do you imagine that it looks like in the future for everything to be to be stitched together? Yeah, that's a tricky one. And I think a lot of smart people are wrecking their brain right now on how to solve that. The big problem is that these loops are not isolated, right? It would be awesome if you're in a loop of working on machine learning and treating data um, would be isolated from the larger software lifecycle loop that you're going through. But these are very much interconnected, right? You, In order to get to... I think as an industry, we have agreed reproducibility is an important thing. We have a non-declarative, non-deterministic piece of software that we're building. So we need to make sure that at least everything around our non-deterministic model 
is reproducible, right? So that we have trust in what we've built and can have trust from a business perspective. So that needs to then just tie in into to address the, the question, where do we need to stitch? I think we need to stitch from not just the inner loop, as I said, because I think that's rather solved. I think training a model is not a complicated thing anymore, but we need to make sure that our tooling and not just from my perspective where we're building tooling, but from an organization that runs machine learning, their tooling needs to support this integrated lifecycle of software development and building the machine learning model in itself. And that will rely, as you put it, on exactly this ops knowledge of automating things, right? You don't want a model that's trained in a hidden way on some developer's notebook somehow reaching production just because you have the software lifecycle automated. On the flip side, if you have the inner loop nailed down to a T because uh, you are an early adopter of Kubeflow and have been growing with Kubeflow for years and everything is already in pipelines and you're looking great, but you don't have a loop towards your deployment and you have no way for your data scientists to discover where the deployment ended up, how it was behaving in production. So that's the challenge. And as the tool providers that we are, we need to go out of the way of the data scientists. So we need to enable them. I think we have been a bit patronizing as an industry for a while, and I'm definitely guilty of that myself. But our role is it to go out of the way in order to support people that want to use a specific technology and not patronize them in how to which technologies they might want to use, um, but support them building healthy workflows through tooling. And so if you talked a lot about making sure that your model is reproducible and, well, everything really needs to be reproducible, but for someone who is maybe just getting started, they are out of school, they're working as an MLE or as a data scientist, what would be some of those, like the first things that you would say to them in as recommendations for getting more towards this ideal of bringing those ops principles into their workflows? I think it's quite cool to be fresh out of uni. You have a thousand ideas and you want to just get going and explore things and that's fine and I would never take that away from anyone. The recommendation would be to try to think at least one step ahead and to think of what your global goal is. Right Before you set out, what's your goal? Your goal is not to run this Jupyter notebook and reproduce this paper that you've read and that had crazy good results. It's a short-term intermediate goal. But your goal is to do something, right? You want to predict fraud. You want to detect fraud. You want to predict user behavior on your website. Do whatever you're doing with that in mind. If you feel like you're isolating yourself with a workflow that you've just built because it might have a hard cut that you cannot bridge towards your goal, okay, that's cool. You could detect that before you got started. And from just the conversations that we've been having and also from our experience, I think there are a lot of drop-off points in the evolution of machine learning and these drop-off points lead to technical debt. And just by thinking of not losing sight of your global goal where you're trying to apply the model and how you're trying to apply the model will always leave you at a better state 
because you can avoid some of the technical debt. No software engineering process will ever leave, work without technical debt occurring. And I think that's fine, but you can try to be, don't rush it, right? Take the time to, op, to, to decide what your goal is in production and then start working out from there and continue to evaluate whether you're still running in the right direction. That was a lot of words for some for a short recommendation to someone that's starting. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. No problem. That's why I like scheduling these uh, long recording sessions so that people can talk about, uh, give long answers, long detailed answers. And one one interesting thing you mentioned there was that there's a lot of drop off points where there's hit, where it produces hidden technical debt. What might be and first off, how are you defining a drop off point, and what is one of the examples that you might give for? That something that produces more technical debt. I think everyone has made the experience. Every practitioner of machine learning has made the experience of how their experiments are developing. So you start out. I mentioned this a couple of times. You start out and you try to re-implement someone else's research, or you have your own novel idea. You're running this, um, and you're doing this in an experimentation way. You do this locally, maybe, or on a Google Colab or something. Cool. So you have your model, you evaluated your results, you have a performance uh, that your metrics look good, right? What's the next step? Um, your next step is, okay, I now I have my own data, right? I, I want to see how my data applies and it might be a large set of data. So that's the first drop-off point. How do I crunch through larger amounts of data in an efficient way? Your collab just might run off out of memory because or you might need a GPU to train. How, how do you attach a GPU to your training if you're not running on a local workstation? How do I do that on AWS? How do I do that on Google Cloud? That's a drop-off point that I would see very early on. And then it progresses. You might have a time series data set that's hundreds of gigabytes big. How do you crunch through that efficiently? You can't, there's no single processor that you can stay, scale horizontally, that you can st scale vertically, sorry, efficiently enough to crunch through such a big data set. So you need to scale out in, in terms of workers, right? That brings in Spark or Google Dataflow or something. That's a drop-off point because that's a big challenge. And that's very opsy now, but also from a machine learning perspective, I think there's your model goes stale at some point. That's a drop-off point. How do I detect staleness? How do I mitigate staleness? How do I detect drift? These are drop-off points. Whenever a, an additional challenge gets added to what you're trying to accomplish, and that, that's a drop-off point. And I think tooling can provide a, a patch for that. Yeah, that's actually, it reminds me of something that we encountered at work very recently, where we were, we handle business documents. And so we have these gigantic, like you said, hundreds of gigabytes data sets of PDFs and images that, uh, that we're processing. And we had to do a lot of pre-processing for some of these. And the like the normal way to do that, if you were just doing it once for maybe an experiment, is you have like four different machines, one for each step of the process that's optimized for what it has to do. So we had one C5 instance with a lot of computing power, one with a lot of memory when you had to do something that was intensive there. And then we had that piping into EMR for, for Spark transforms. Then finally, you have GPU instances for training it. And so we, we had this process, but then afterwards, we were like, okay, we have to productionize this. 
how do we actually automate this like coordination of multiple different machines without having someone without having someone to uh, run the press the button on each of those manually and piping data into S3 and uh, making sure your names are correct. So how might, uh, and uh, this is getting towards one of the problems that you solve with ZenML, where you have all those things in a pipeline with that, with the runtime abstracted away. But how, what are there, how, how do you think through solving that issue? And how do you think through what, what you're building in terms of the pipeline and the abstractions? I think there are two ways to this, right? There's one, the solution immediate that might produce technical debt. And then there's how would you approach this if you had the ability to design this from scratch and um, go back to zero and start from zero, but do this with your knowledge that you've acquired now. And that's a perfect example. We've been there with our history as we came from an applied machine learning perspective in the past. But yeah, I, so I totally understand the pain. If you want to dive into solving this immediately, automation, as you mentioned, is going to be your friend and you will need some automation but that's uh, still a bit fragile because it's very much tied to the process that you're following right now and that might change it might be that emr runs out of favor in the developing world because somebody brings up hadoop 2.0 and it's just not as shit as hadoop is but it's actually great and right you need to get rid of spark that but you're locked in, right? Because you're very much tailored. You're scripting towards Spark. That's exactly what I meant with these drop-off points. Um, whenever you solve just your immediate next need without thinking about the global perspective. Tooling-wise, I think that's exactly what we're trying to solve with ZenML. And I think many others are also trying to solve this in a very healthy way. That you remove the thinking about the, the processing. So you... that you as a machine learning team, you can focus on the actual computation that you want to run, but you can disassociate a bit from where it's supposed to run by using a pipelining tool that is giving you the options to scale out to these technologies yourself and helps you with the automation without you having to adapt your automation every time your requirements to the environment change. I hope that was coherent. Yeah, yeah, it was. And uh, so maybe we can start to talk a little bit more about what you're building. And like you, you hinted that you might started out as a as not an ML tooling company. So can you talk about what the original idea for that was, and then the decision to pivot to what you're doing now? Yeah. So we started out very far from ML tooling. Um, it was applied machine learning in a predictive maintenance scenario, and I think it's important to understand also the backgrounds that we have in the team. So my two co-founders, one is a, a local Bavarian guy. He studied mechanical engineering and worked at a commercial vehicle parts supplier, a big company here in Munich for a couple of years. So he had quite deep insight into the commercial vehicle industry. And so that's Adam Hamza, my other co-founder, um, he's from Pakistan. He did his master's here in Munich at the TU Munich Technical University in machine learning or with a focus on machine learning so he's the ml super brain and it made sense to apply machine learning to the industry that adam had a lot of knowledge in and it, it's still a very promising sector to actually 
solve a real world problem of, of trucks and parts of trucks and commercial vehicles in general failing and therefore just producing problems, not just for the environment, but also on a commercial level. And we had really good results in that field. We had a lot of proof of concepts that we were going through and then hit a bit of a, I would call it a, a setback whenever the pricing would come into play. You would have to, the willingness to pay was way lower than what you would realistically have to charge as a startup building a product. But the problem was still there. So we tried to become cheaper by being better with our own tooling and solving our problems more efficiently so we could drive the cost down. And about a year ago, we were faced with a decision point a bit because we realized, okay, there's COVID is on the rise and also our negotiations are taking longer than we expected. And what do we have? As, a, as an entrepreneur, I think it's the challenge that you have to put yourself through to realize what are the assets that I have available and what can I do with them? And we realized, okay, we had to solve our problems ourselves because there wasn't like the golden child offering on the open source market to, to mitigate all our worries. So we started doing some user interviews just with people from our network, what problems they are struggling with internally. And they were exactly the problems that we were looking at, reproducing their results in a reliable way, having proper automation that doesn't break every time a requirement from up or downstream changes and just driving down this overall cost in terms of time and energy of maintaining infrastructure and increasing the time people can spend on machine learning. So we set out to clean up our act and clean up our code base into something that isn't uh, atrocious to use and atrocious to look at and ended up essentially open sourcing, I would say, three months ago or making the final move towards open sourcing three months ago. And we're live since December. So check out GitHub. Give us a star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I really like the design philosophy of ZenML. We hinted at this a little bit before of you in data science. We have a lot of tools that do really specific things really well. So like scikit-learn, really good general ML library, or PyTorch, like really good deep learning. And those are only the modeling pieces. And we talked about before about you still need to stitch those together. And I like the ZenML philosophy of having a very flexible horizontal pipeline, but you can pop in those like vertical components that, that you want to integrate with. So you can, can you talk a little bit about that design decision in general and what the kind of abstractions are that you chose for, the, for ZenML? Yeah, perfect. Super happy. Thanks for that segue. <laughs> so yeah, it really breaks down to this philosophy and this realization that there is so much good tooling already out there. I, I would totally underline that four times and sign my name to it. And I, from our perspective, I hinted at this earlier, it's our job to go out of the way of your process, right? Because you know your process. We cannot anticipate that in all detail. But what we can do is help teams using ZML and general being um, tasked with machine learning to use the technologies that will get their job done. So that's why we uh, really focus on, on integrations as easy as 
they can get. In the, building in, an integration-driven system is always a challenge of where do I patronize someone into using a specific technology and where do I stay out of the way? And I think we err on trying to stay out of the way by allowing everyone to just run a pipeline locally. That's how you start. You are in, you will forever and always, I think, be in your Jupyter notebook and do some experimentation just to figure out where am I going with this? You don't want to reinvent all the little steps that you have done to come to your first results just because you now want to run this on Google Cloud. That's why we try to give very easy, we're back again to these drop-off points. Um, we try to design integrations around these drop-off points so that the choice for tooling is not connected to having to reinvent your internal architecture, but it's just another progression in the professionalization of your approach. So to give more of a concrete example, what might be you're laying it out in a pipeline step and or as a series of steps in a pipeline, what are some of those common steps that you see and what what can you what are the current integrations? Mm -hmm. So I think from a process, from a high-level perspective, machine learning always follows the same process, right? You you source some data, you might have to do some pre-transforms to just make it coherent. Then you do you split it, you pre-process it, you train your model, you evaluate the results, and ideally you have a deployment at the end. But I think that's still not quite there, at least the ecosystem and. So the integrations need to follow these building blocks to be helpful. Integrations are tailored towards sourcing data efficiently from common data sources, just like BigQuery or a Postgres database or flat files. You mentioned your own project where you're sourcing PDFs, like big chunks of binary blobs from a blob storage. So it needs to be convenient to get that data because the process, it shouldn't be hard to get the data. It should be hard to manipulate the data so that you can do something useful with it. That's what you should be focusing on. That's this integration aspect. And I think very common is then to, especially for a large data set, as you um, pointed it out, you have some different requirements for your split than you have for your pre-processing, than you have for your training. So there will always be a stepwise association of integrations so that you can make those choices of having a C5 instance for uh, one task and then uh, a GPU-attached machine for your training or even SageMaker. So that's a bit... I, I hope that was a bit more concrete. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And so when you talk about... you, Or you mentioned that you did some user interviews when you were taking stock of what you had. What were some of the problems that... Like the main problems that you had seen most commonly in others that you were already solving what exactly was the was some of the solutions and what are the maybe general lessons that one might be able to apply from those mm -hmm. i think a re very much reoccurring pattern is this struggle of automating current workflow i think it's a very early realization for anyone dealing with machine learning that doing things manually it doesn't scale and it's not fun right it that that's often a driver for people to adopt 
good practices because it's just not fun to have to manually retrain your model and wait for results. So that's a very early conversation topic that we've got into and it spans very long in the professionalization of projects because it reaches all the way to the deployment phase where you are in an iterative development cycle on your model when you are already facing problems about staleness. The same problems are persistent throughout this life cycle from your early experimentation to your iterative redeployments and, and retrainings. And that was the biggest talking point really with um, our early user interviews. It has become way more nuanced um, since we faced uh, this decision to open source. And by now we're talking about deep details um, in terms of integrations to specific tooling. People have, I think the industry has changed a bit and I think also the way we do user interviews have has changed a bit. I think what people commonly struggle are still the same old topics of sourcing data reliably, automating your process in a way that doesn't break. I said this before, when requirements change and then bringing your model into production in a way that the team can own it. That's a continuous thing where outside support is necessary for teams in order to get their model into production. And that's a very frustrating experience for the organization, but also for the teams. Imagine you build this up and you must have felt the same in, in projects before you build this up and you get neglected the joy of seeing this through all to the end. And it, sometimes it's because it's scary, but sometimes it's just because the skills are not there and the willingness to educate a team and to change maybe even a team composition, add something to the team composition to create those skills is just not there. Mm -hmm. And that's when you were saying that, it actually reminded me of something that uh, might be interesting and explain some of the these DevOps principles of in uh, a lot of the internships that I had done before, it, it is very much of like, you build something and then that's it. That's your internship. It's handed off afterwards. Someone takes it over and then deploys. It. And like you said, it's quite dissatisfying sometimes. And then when I went to Amazon, which was one of the first to have a lot of these principles, it was, uh, that was the first time when I was able to actually within the span of those three months, because the tooling, the processes were the people were like, all in the the culture of you build it, you run it. I was able to not only just build the project, but also have it run inside of CI/CD and actually serve customers while I was like still at the job. So it's uh, it speaks to one of the things that you were talking about before of when these things work, they work really well, and when they don't, we face a lot of the issues that that we see now. Yeah, it's super cool to also see your your progression through your career i've been following you for a bit and it's a very nice perspective to have to have been through these internships and to to come from this motivation so i emailed you this a while back i was really impressed by how you went from gambling to machine learning and but I, so it shows really this motivation of solving a problem and it didn't end because your model was trained, it ended only when you applied it to to something and got value out of it. And denying a team this satisfaction is 
a risk for your organization. It's a risk for the team. It will just foster unhealthy practices being followed. And I think there are so many lessons from software engineering that are slowly trickling into machine learning now. And this is one of the biggest ones that should hurry up to get there. <laughs> and you talked about before about how automation is like the, the one of the hardest things. And now the conversation around is getting more nuanced as you build out the platform more. Mm -hmm. What are the what were the common mistakes that you saw when teams would go to automate something, specifically a training pipeline? Like mm -hmm. what would what are the things that if someone is looking to automate something right now that they should be on the lookout for and make sure they don't do like completely wrong given uh yeah. I think being over specific is one of the first pitfalls, right? Um, again, if you lose sight of what your bigger perspective is, then you tend to build something that's very tailored to what you're facing right now. Um, but that will not help you in a week or in two or in four or in, in 10. It starts with uh, like very obvious things that teams suffer from a not invented here syndrome where they shy away from adopting to outside tooling to solve some of the expertise that they just might not have. Not every team is capable of building their own pipelining solution, and they shouldn't. That I think that's a, a big one. Big pitfalls are also just to be over-specific in the terms of the technologies chosen. So you mentioned you were running your training pipelines on specific instances. And so if one of these instances just goes away or somebody SSH'd into it and changed the installed PyTorch version and you didn't know about it, your process would break, right? So that's being over-specific. Rather treat your pipelines like cattle where the automation takes care of everything for you so that it's easier to adapt over time. Don't rely on resources just being there. Resources will not always just be there. Create the resources when you need them. I think that's a big one. That, yeah. Yeah, that's actually one of the mistakes that we had made when we were trying to automate these things where we didn't, where the, the AMIs we were using had Spark already installed. And so when we went to, we we just used the AMI and we put it into that automated pipeline. And then one day the Spark version in the AMI got upgraded and it broke all of our stuff. So definitely being over specific is a lesson we learned the hard way. Yeah, I think there... If you would ask a top ops guy, right, I, just in a plain conversation, you meet him in the bar and you have, well, you can't meet him in a bar right now, but a year ago you would meet him in a bar and you would have a conversation about you're an ops guy. So I want to process something and it has this dependency and how do I do it? You would always recommend you to, to go for Docker, for example, because you control the environment that your process is executed in. And I think that's just... For, for DevOps guys, this is an obvious thing. And for ML guys, this might be a novel thing. And I think we have to bring that together. Um, yeah. And uh, it was actually, it sent out a tweet very recently because uh, I was learning Docker and uh, like just in the past month or so because of this issue we were facing and the solution, like you said, was containerization. And it's actually not as hard as, uh, as I think most ML people would expect it to be able to use it. It's even though it is a foreign concept. Demystifying the DevOps world is important because most of us ops guys are not really good coders. So we tend to choose very simple solutions. And 
those of us that are very good coders realize that not everyone else is a good coder. So Docker is a prime example. It look, might look very daunting from the outside, but a Docker file is really one of the simplest things to get your head around. There are some fallacies about caching of a Docker build and, and how do registries work and what is an image, what is a container, when is it what, how layers work. But those are details that you need to concern yourself only very late in adopting Docker. Um, so I think this general curiosity and openness to technologies that are novel is a very crucial thing and losing this, this mystic fear of DevOps topics is important, right? We've been around forever and we're simple to work with, I think, I hope. And so what would be, we've covered a lot of these, a lot of these ops topics already, but one of the things that was written in one of your blog posts, I think it was like 12 factors towards reproducible ML pipelines, if I recall correctly. And great article, by the way, totally gonna link it below because uh, on the side, I was writing down like a lot of things that we have to change after I was reading this article. But, and one of them was separating code from config and even going so far as to making sure that all the hyperparameters that you're using, the data sources, manifest versions, et cetera, are all separate from the code itself and can be changed outside of the pipeline's runtime, if, mm -hmm. if I understand correctly. Yeah. Can you talk about the motivations behind that? Because at least for me, that was pretty unintuitive and I had to think about that uh, for a little bit. Okay, that's a good feedback. I hope it still resonated and it's important to hear if something is unintuitive that um, so for me, a good feedback. But the motivation it was unintuitive just because I hadn't uh, heard of the idea before. And so mm, I had okay. to reconsider like what we were doing and why, why this approach would be better. Yeah, but that's cool. That's exactly the conversation I enjoy um, because bringing a new perspective to a field is exciting. You, you get to challenge your own pre-notions. So I think for tr traditional software engineers and for ops guys, one seminal piece is the 12 factor app it's been wildly talked about in like the early 2000s when it came out it has somehow not been as seminal to people as i thought it should be it describes how your software stack should behave from how, how you should treat development how you should treat deployments how you should just generally follow good healthy practice and i try to bring that into machine learning with this article. And this exactly the separation of config from code is coming from, if you think of an API, just to break it down really simple, you have your API server and you have a upstream database that you get your user data from, you have a downstream analytics database that you write some intermediate stuff, you have maybe some observability tool that you wanna send some events to, those are configurational details that you want to remove from hard coding in the code so that you can run uh, this the API locally with your test setup. You can run it on a staging environment with some fake data to, for, I don't know, who to play around with. And, and you can run it in production without having to change code. And, and I think the same is necessary for, a, for trust in machine learning. You need the standardization. You don't want to ask yourself, this might be a provocative question, but how often have you had to 
add in a Jupyter notebook a step where you had to relook at the data frame that you're currently working on because you're like, how is this a null and not a zero? And why is this so sparse? I ran this through my code. It ran through the split. How, how is that possible? If you have to ask yourself this question, you might want to standardize to just get rid of that. If you know that your split is good and you can do the split with config rather than with writing the code every time over and over again, you've reached trust. But you need to then remove that configurational aspect of the standardization from your code base. So all of a sudden, you need a config file. And then the next logical step um, beyond the standardization is, OK, I don't just want to use this config for what it is, I can go one step further and I can actually pin things so that if I rerun them in the future, the version pinning, uh, just like your dependencies, leads you to the same result as you had before because your code base might evolve. So that's a bit this motivation behind declarative configuration. But there's, sorry if I'm rambling, but there's a second upside to a good declarative configuration because you don't want to have to read code in order to know what happened. A good declarative config will solve that for you. And I'm not just talking about some maybe less informed team member, like a product manager, project manager, whoever, looking at your configuration to figure things out, but also you, because your code base evolves, right? You might not know which... Uh, line of code is responsible for what four weeks down the line, 10 weeks down the line, two years down the line. But if you read a declarative config, it will always mean the same thing. And you will always be able to tell what the result of what you ran as a pipeline will be. So how far would you take that for, let's say, uh, a deep learning model? Like, where would you draw the line between like the model itself and then the actual parameters like configuration so for example would a like the number of layers be a something that you would want to put in your declarative config or would that be hard something that would be hard coded that depends so you can definitely put it in the config it might be too verbose i think i can very much um, sympathize with the thought however it's important then to still use an additional way of versioning that model right because that's your key aspect. And in that sense, putting committing your model to, to a Git version, uh, versioning system is just as well being declarative about it. So in some way or another, you will have to be declarative about your model. And you're just choosing. You're shifting left and right. And if you um, choose Git, then you should version pin the Git char in your config. So essentially, you get the same thing. I think it's a bit of a preference, to be honest. Yeah, that makes that definitely makes sense. Where at, in some, yeah, that was a good answer to the question, actually. Where, yeah, we're doing uh, something else. So like you said, we're not using Git, but another system for tracking the model. But what would be some of the resources that you would recommend for people to read into, maybe watch, like uh, for if they are someone like me and they are just getting into the world of ops and trying to apply some of these things to to our everyday work. So I'm not, as I have a bit of a non-traditional path into my career, I cannot point out seminal 
books or anything on the or well like i could try but i think i would fail my 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 craft miserably what i really enjoyed and what helped me on my path a lot was just listening to conferences and also historic ones especially the big organizations out there with very renowned engineering departments are very adamant about sending their engineers to conferences and have them talk about the challenges that they faced and solved and i think it's important to break out of your filter bubble if you're coming from an ml background and you want to expand your horizon just watch somebody talk on a conference on youtube and follow along it will expose you to so many technologies and such a different way of approaching problems that might be completely novel to you that create your own that will spark curiosity that will create new knowledge without you necessarily being having like a hot breath of a expiring project with a deadline in your neck you can do this at your own pace and you can incorporate these ideas into your own thoughts it's a bit tougher if you have an AMI where the Spark version has changed and you now need to scramble to adopt Docker into your project lifecycle. It might be nicer to do that ahead of time, right? <laughs> yeah, we won't be making that, that mistake again. For sure. <laughs> and another thing that is related to that is how ML teams should be responsible for the monitoring of their models. And when you had already talked about observability, but what might be the things that you would put in place to monitor like all parts of that pipeline what would you think are the essential things to add to be able to see so the the, the absolute blanket answer to this would be adopt uh, open source tooling that gets you there but i think as i know firsthand how these projects usually unfold i think it's um, important to just add things where you can anticipate hurt that will come to you later start by just monitoring your model in production through some classical way, Datadog, or you might use, I don't know, Prometheus because you're deploying on a Kubernetes cluster. These are easy to set up and easy to use, and you get an understanding already of what's going on. And then over time, try to incorporate and methods for drift. There's open source tooling. The Selden guys are doing a great job when it comes to um, just creating more knowledge of what's going on around your model and being very explicit about how your model is served. So big shout out to them. That would be a very quick win to achieve in, in, in your setup. But if you're setting out to understand what's going on and just not run into this cargo cool problem of, okay, this open source repo is hot right now, I want to adopt it. Then you can, as I said, just build step by step and add something that is established to your tool chain, like a Datadog Prometheus, and uh, create understanding from there and just build layers on top of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. We are uh, in in debugging some of these issues that came up in our pipeline. Like you said, you, if you think through it uh, ahead of time, you can definitely think through and be able to see where things might go wrong and be able to log those things in advance. These are the tough conversations, I, right? I've been in so many of these conversations when you're working on something really quickly. You're you're, you're hacking it together. Ah, okay, we need a bigger machine for that. We could add 
a bit of a deeper integration to CloudWatch, right? You're running on AWS, you want to send maybe some more metrics to CloudWatch, then we would know how this job is timing-wise being executed, how long it takes for a chunk of data to be processed. I don't know what. Ah, no, let's not do that. Let's just fix the problem at hand, right? Sometimes it's important to invest this slight bit of extra effort. I feel a bit bad because it gave a recommendation to ah, think it through ahead of times. Yeah, okay, that, that's a jerk recommendation if you think about it because it's not always possible to think uh, things through in every detail. But yeah, the bigger picture and investing a bit of effort in order to know what's going on at every stage will get you 90% of the way. Mm-hmm. And another place where that was in your 12 factors article where it uh, has this trade-off between speed and potentially like good engineering practices. It's not a trade-off, but specifically, but the section was on experimenting in pipelines and getting to that experimentation in pipelines as quickly as possible. And of course, it's much slower to set up the, not much slower, but it is slower in general to have your experiments be running in the pipeline and be automated and having their results be tracked automatically in a comparable way. So why would someone want to set that up when their goal is just to get to a solution really quickly? If you know 100% for sure that you will only run one experiment and then you're, it's a one and done. No, no one will ever touch it again. No one will ever look at it again. And all the parameters, everything ahead of time, do it without pipelines, please don't bother. If you don't know, if you're really experimenting, of course you want a pipeline. Um, Just out of the perspective, if you run a very manual experiment, you can run one experiment and you wait for the results and then you run the next experiment. If you have invested this bit of extra effort, as you put it, into pipelining, you can run 15 or 20 or 40, 100 different split configs or a hundred different pre-processing configs, very nuanced at the same time in parallel. And if you've invested a bit of an additional effort and you've built your pipeline so that they use the 12 factors as a basis and you have declarative configs and you have standardized a lot of things, you can compare all of them with one command if you're really like top-notch or using XenML, right? <laughs> this is... I think a underutilized power for early experimentation. Sure, many teams are at that stage when they mature over time, that parallel experiments are a reality and not just um, hyperparameter tuning is something teams employ, but also tuning of parameters before training, right? And all the lead up to training that has an impact. And if you have pipelines, you can do that from a very early stage and be much more solid in understanding how these pre-processing steps affect data and model performance. Mm-hmm. With ZenML specifically, when you are starting to experiment, what would the workflow be from the start of a someone who has a new project and they want to take it into like all the way to deployment? Would you would if you had ZenML pipelines already set up, you would have maybe a, a new one for that new project and then be able to set up the integrations for what you want to use and then start your experiments in that? Is that, Am I thinking about it the right way? Yes. And I think an important added 
aspect of this is it that Xenamel grows with you. So you start a new project, you create a new folder on your machine, you do git in it so that you can track your code over time and you have, you know, just version control. You do Xenamel in it, you get Xenamel set up and you run the first experiments local, right? You source the data from God knows who and God knows where. You run the first experiments in your Jupyter notebook, but it's not just your training is not just run in some cell, but you do a pipeline.run and it happens locally still. But because you did that slight bit of extra effort, you can now rerun that on my machine. You can rerun it on a virtual machine in the cloud. You can say, okay, uh, I've done my first experimentation. Now I want to run more data through it. I add Spark, I add SageMaker, right? You can grow very gradually. You do not have to reinvent your whole cycle. You do not have to patch in automation that breaks your processing as it has been done before, but you can just pick and choose technologies to grow your project and um, even transition to a, a team setting where you started out locally, you transition to a team setting by adding a shared metadata storage and a shared artifact storage. And gets cooler, right? You ran a split. I don't have to rerun that split if I'm using the same data source and I'm using the same config and we have a shared artifact store. I can just start from your split. I don't need to recompute it. So I can save myself a whole lot of time when thinking about large sets of data. Yeah, that uh, the concept of the artifact store was something that I thought was really interesting because of course like you mentioned before there's the big uh, hype around feature stores and the the artifact store makes would you describe it as a like the feature store is an implementation of the artifact store something like that the other way around i would say right where it's so like the the artifact store is a is more general than the feature store no Ah, no, then, then I misunderstood you. So the art, then you were right. So yes, so an artifact store is a very simple kind of feature store, but it's disconnected from your raw data because it's caching the actual outputs as binary, right? You, it's, you cannot query an artifact store in its own. It makes sense oh, in I combination okay. with the metadata store. So they are very much interconnected, but exactly for the reason of resuming jobs and not doing computation over and over again, but to be able to restart computation, you need to separate those two out a bit just because binary data is not smartly put into a MySQL database, but you want some blob storage for it. Okay, I see. And so when you would have a... So how would that uh, work in combination with a feature store, the ZNML pipeline in general? Mm -hmm. Would you imagine that you have... You're obviously producing at the end a deployable artifact of your model. And so would maybe you have that model be when it's running in production, that would be taking things from the feature store and then the same computations that were running in the pipeline are being fed into the feature store? Or yeah. how would that So you could definitely take this a whole long way. You could uh, take out the artifact store altogether and use the feature store for these intermediate results as well. So that would be an option, but yeah, that's exactly the whole motivation to make sure that your trained model in production can access the same, the same data in the same format as you did throughout your processing. I think that's 
something that we will see very soon the the whole ml ops especially the pipelining niche to move towards i think we're already seeing a surge towards integration everyone's going big on that so that's a cool check mark there i think that's healthy and i think feature stores the hype is gone now so now we can focus on using feature stores very efficiently in actual real world applications and that will be one of it so beyond just like pipelines and feature stores what would be say that you were advising a new startup who is using ml at the core of what they're doing what would be the other bits and pieces of that ml ops stack that you would suggest that that they go out and implement into their processes that they're tooling hmm. i think you're almost all the way there when you make sure that your data is stays coherent right that's what a feature store is there for you want to have this authority of truth and you want to have this authority of over your data and be very you have trust in your data i think that's the big motivation there when with pipelines you can have trust in how your model was trained and the rest is really minute details don't get lost in the which tools should i use for serving which tools do i need kubernetes do i need this do i need that? do i need that so I, I need to do a bit of a shameless plug but my co-founder wrote budget ml as a side project and i think it encapsulates this philosophy do it simple you don't need kubernetes necessarily if you have a solid value chain before that you might just run a docker container a dockerized um, model serving approach in behind some aws load balancers on actual ec2 instances that's easy right you, you don't need to know kubernetes so i would shy away from more tooling so that would be the advice keep it simple take it easy and grow steadily only when you cannot avoid using kubernetes add kubernetes only when you cannot avoid using other tooling, add that tooling. Mm, yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And uh, I was talking to yeah, someone at a startup before, and he was pretty much saying the exact same things. Just keep it extremely simple at the start, if possible, buy, and then anything that you need beyond that, you can go and build specifically for your own use case. But yeah, keep it simple. And then for you made the interesting decision with ZenML in general to make it open source. And there seems to be a lot of, not debate, but it's the ML tooling companies, the platforms are definitely taking different approaches to their business models. You have some managed ones, of course, not only ones with the cloud, but also places like uh, Snorkel and things like those. What went into this? Did what went into the decision to make it open source, and how do you plan on monetizing it as mm -hmm. a business? So the motivation behind open source is manifold, but the biggest one is definitely to provide value where value is necessary. And open source just gives us the ability to really provide the value of our vision in as many organizations as possible. And it comes from parts us feeling the pain and having been in the trenches and longing for tooling that would have solved our problems. And Obviously, we saw a lack in the landscape. Otherwise, we would not have made that decision. So it's about penetrating organizations with this value and just removing some of this mystic DevOps hesitancy to adopt these practices just through tooling. When it comes to the 
monetization. So for now, we're really focused on providing as much value through the open source repo, uh, just to make sure that we are actually living up to the vision that we have uh, set out to to fulfill, and that we are setting that we're meeting the bar that we are setting also with the content that we're producing and just the the spokespeople that we're trying to be for our vision. The monetization will come at a later stage. And uh, I think for now it's really doubling down on the value that we're providing and the integrations that we can provide and um, the simplicity of using ZenML for data scientists of all stages in, in their learning. Yeah, I definitely think that, as I'm sure there's a big edge to be had in terms of marketing to developers if it is open source, because say like me, as someone at a large company, if I thought that something that a managed like paid platform was doing was cool, there's no chance that I would be able to get that adopted. But with an open source tool, you can use it, show it to your boss, say, hey, like I'm using it for this use case, could be useful for other things too. And you can, like you said, you can, the tool can grow with the organization and it's not necessarily constrained with the normal procurement methods that large companies have to deal with yeah what is the future roadmap what's the vision of where you see zenml myote so i think it's hard to talk about a roadmap that spans more than what i can see from my own desk at the moment so I'll try to stay vague when it comes to long-term long-term goals uh, that are concrete. So I don't want GitHub issues yelling at me because we didn't provide an integration to X or Y. But in terms of a bit of an abstracted um, focus, it is integrations and it is simplicity of use, just what I said earlier, to make sure that the value is there. And roadmap-wise, over time, I think it will move beyond the actual applied machine learning focus in terms of integrations and in terms of simplicity of use, but to go um, and add this organizational aspect uh, of value to it, to, to, to ZenML and to the commercial offering that will follow at some point down the line. I think the biggest mistake we could make right now is to get too bogged down with commercialization and lose sight of the value that we're providing. So. Roadmap-wise, you can expect a lot of integrations coming. Um, I think we have a good high pace right now when it comes to these, and we're listening actively to the community to provide more integrations where necessary. Yeah, so much for that. That was a lawyer's answer, uh, but I, I try to be precise. No problem, no problem. So just to give listeners a sense of what the what they can expect right now, what are the integrations that you offer and i guess if what's like the immediate next ones that you're trying to work on so i think we had a uh, if i'm not correct uh, we if i'm not mistaken we had a release on friday uh, with postgres being there so that's obviously high on our goal to get as many data sources in as conveniently as possible cnml is built also on this vision of extensibility so it is already very easy to add your own very nuanced custom integrations but these blanket integrations to postgres to bigquery to nosql databases um, elastic search is something that's very big on our radar that will come at some point in the near future those are important and we're focusing on those but we're also trying to make it as easy as possible for organizations to run zenml in their environment so what am i talking about aws is a recent integration that we brought out we're going to expand on that 
EMR obviously is a hot topic. SageMaker is a super powerful suite of tools that is super confusing to use. So we're going to make that a bit easier. Azure is for especially larger organizations, a, a big topic and more established organizations tend to gravitate towards Microsoft, which I can totally relate to. So we're going to double down on that and we're just going to make it as easy as possible for non-ops people to provision ZenML in a way that they can use it with a team. So I think those are very up and coming ones. I could now pull up our, actually you can check on GitHub. We are trying to have our issues as, as open as possible so that the community knows what to expect. And if a willing contributor comes along, they can contribute. So Azure is definitely up there. There's like a simple bootstrapping for AWS in the pipeline. Great. And uh, yeah, I will definitely be trying to learn more about ZenML. It, and when you that someone has an interesting tool when you, you read all about it and you think, wow, I can't believe this didn't exist before. And yours, that was definitely what the experience I had when I was looking through yours. And it's surprising. So I feel very much honored. Thank you for that. And it's surprising because I know that there's other good tooling in this space, right? So uh, Pachyderm is doing a good job. There's uh, Qflow, obviously, the Behemoth and it's like googly project, right? But it's powerful and it's really good. David Aronczyk is someone that we regularly talk to, the co-founder of Kubeflow. And there's already so much good work being done in this space. But I think the simplicity was necessary in order to really reach this next progression. And just by seeing how many people are announcing integrations right now shows me that, okay, we're moving as an industry towards the right goals. And that gives me faith. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Speaking of like uh, Kube flow and stuff, like you said, it's it's perhaps maybe more complicated than a lot of people who are just starting to use ML uh, at their company would would be able to handle to implement something like that. It's it's very powerful, and it I think if you have the resources to implement Kubeflow in your organization, and what do I mean with that? If you have a couple of ops guys that are interested in machine learning and you need to fill their time, then adopt Kubeflow. Right? It's super powerful, uh, but it's also super complicated, as you put it. And then uh, Pachyderm also, I know you're not doing the exact same thing as them, but they have some interesting immutability stuff that I think you might have as well. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between what the goals of the platform are and maybe comparing them a little bit? Mm, so we're in this, even in the same AI alliance that's uh, being created and where we're trying to standardize some of the communication interfaces between the tooling that's emerging and uh, is progressing in the space. There's no, no B for anything. I think they're doing a good job. When it comes to the processes that we follow, I think it's not the tooling that's dictating what's happening, but it's the process that is already there and that needs to be followed. And therefore, we will always overlap in some degrees. But I think the vision is slightly different um, for us than it is for them. But then again, I don't want to talk about their vision as I don't want to run risk of badmouthing anyone without with half knowledge. Yeah, sure, of course. And in, in the future, I'll, I'm, I'm trying to uh, get one of the guys from Pachyderm on, uh, on the podcast as well. So maybe we can, uh, yeah, listeners can draw their own conclusions. Yeah, that would be cool. I, I'd be tuning in for that. I'd be super curious to hear them. 
And uh, before we start to wrap up, there's some of the, uh, before we get to the rapid fire questions, uh, do you want to just shout out the name of GitHub where people can find more information? Yeah, for sure. So check out Xenamel uh, on GitHub. It's myo-io slash Xenamel on GitHub. Uh, but just search for Xenamel, really. We're the only ones. Check it yeah. out. And Give then us a I'll, yeah, definitely give it a star. And I'll also shout out the blog, myo.io slash blog. Really good information that I got a lot of value from. It's actually blog.myo.io. Oh, okay. Good correction then. <laughs> and uh, so now on to some of the rapid fire questions. The, and we had a little bit of a, a talk over email about this first one, but yeah. what do you do for fun outside of work? I thought about that for a bit because right now I cannot do the things I usually would like to do. MMA guy, I usually spend three, four days per week on the mats doing either BJJ, kickboxing, both uh, some form of that. That's usually how I spend most of my weeknights. But I also have close ties to a few gastronomers here in Munich. So it's been a bit painful to see how they are, these guys are suffering. So that would be my normal routine. These days, it's running as much as I can, just so I don't stay complacent on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, I've said that a few of our listeners uh, might, might know this, but uh, actually the reason that I was able to have the free time to do the podcast was because I couldn't train MMA anymore. As I'm sure it takes up a lot, it takes up a lot of time. Yeah, no, it, uh, but it's such a fulfilling sport to do, and it, it's, it's this humbling aspect of doing MMA. You're never the guy, There's, right? You and it's not in your control. It's so humbling. It's this continuous uh, memento mori telling you this tiny whisper on your ear, telling you're not the guy. You're not. There, there's so much to learn. You will never stop learning. And I, it's this insanely motivating thing for me to, to continue to learn and get better at what I'm doing. How did you get into uh, MMA? It's also an interesting story. I'll make it quick. But I used to be big into mountain biking. That was like the base sport. Raced in high school, raced in college on my college team. And I actually had like a pretty bad injury in one of the college races. So I fractured like some of the bones in my neck, just going headfirst into a tree off of a jump and during a race. And so I decided I needed to do, switch to something a little bit more safe. And you chose and, and so, MMA? <laughs> yeah, that's why people think it's an interesting story because I've always loved the sport and uh, it's actually surprisingly safe, but uh, not always the best on your neck specifically, but you can, if, as long as you do stretches, strengthening exercises, it's uh, completely fine. Yeah, that's surprising how much additional exercise and stretches and strengthening happens around just practicing MMA. It's not like you show up at a gym and you roll and you go home, but you, you stretch and you really build up your physique to support your body around it. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it takes so much time. <laughs> yeah. And the second question here is, what book or books do you most often recommend to other people? So I'm, I'm a book rat through and through, and I think I'm already down five or six books this year. So it really depends on what context you're talking in. I tend to read everything that I get my hands on from nonfiction to fiction. I have recommended a couple of times now something deeply hidden. There was an insanely well-written book about quantum physics um, explained so that even I understood it. So shout out there. But also when it comes to I don't know, sci-fi, for example, The Expanse or The Three-Body Problem is just something for a curious mind to 
dive into and get sucked in for a week or so until you're spat out on the other side of a multi-book series, which is cool. But also on higher level topics, uh, extreme ownership is something that I re read very recently. It's from an author called uh, Jocko Willink. He's a former SEAL and it's very much painted from an American military perspective, which is interesting as a German guy to read through. But there are lessons that I could wholeheartedly support behind it. So that was a very interesting read. Mm -hmm. It's funny, Jocko was actually the, uh, when I was choosing what to do for when I was getting started in MMA, Jocko was the one who suggested jujitsu was like the first one to start. It was, I was listening to his podcast and he was like, yeah, if you want to get into MMA, start with jujitsu. And so I was like, all right, guess I'll start with that. I should have, I should have gotten myself a flip knife so that I could do an homage to Jocko now, like playing around with a knife in this podcast. He's a cool guy. Uh, and I think he's completely right. BJJ is a great start for MMA. And then third question, which is, what advice would you give to someone just getting started with MLOps? Don't listen to advice. <laughs> no, I, I said it earlier, maintain an orbital view of what you're trying to achieve and what's going on with machine learning in your field, uh, because that will yield us, will yield you the best results. It will continue to drive your curiosity in fields that are surrounding machine learning and might be adjacent and you will always identify things as a junior guy if you get a huh reaction if somebody explains something to you or oh, we do it like this and we do it like that and your reaction is huh and it doesn't go away this huh then okay there's something you can hunker down on and you can innovate on because it's inefficient and trust your gut on that interesting and the last two which i recently have added what have you recently changed your mind on? That's a tough one. I love to change my mind on everything, really, just because it happens so regularly. It usually means that I learn something. It happens to me a couple of times a day. Uh, most recent thing is how important statistics is. So I think our policy right now globally is defined through data and we can clearly see which countries understand data and which countries just do not care or have other motivations going on for driving their policy so it has changed my mind a bit i was always a bit of a nerd for statistics but it showed me how much impact statistics has or a statistical mind can have in in every aspect of life i definitely agree with that and coming from a like gambling background most I can tell you firsthand, most people don't understand probability correctly. And when you see it firsthand, it's you get a lot different sense of how the world works. And lastly, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? So I could pull up this thing about statistics just again. I think many people loathe statistics from their university days and never really see the beauty behind it. But I would um, rather say that actually that ownership and, and responsibility does not end with yourself. It expands to your whole surroundings. If you're aware of something, then all of a sudden you're responsible, right? The other people might be also responsible for it, but you're aware of it. So own up to it and um, take ownership. Great. That's a great answer. And so Ben, it's been a really interesting conversation. And I just want to thank you again for 
coming onto the podcast. Viewers should definitely check out what uh, you and your co-founders are building. I think it's super cool. So check then check out the GitHub by searching for it. I'll also put the links in the description below. So again, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. Cool conversation. And thanks for asking great questions. You set me up for this. So this was amazing. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.